It is time to make hell in the cell great again this week here on Kicking Out at Two. I'm your host, Dave Rosenbluth, and we got a pretty pretty interesting show planned for you as we approach the 2021 WWE Hell in the Cell event this Sunday, headlined by Roman Reigns and Rey Mysterio inside Hell in the Cell, along with Drew McIntyre and Bobby Lashley. I'll get into those matches in a minute because this is a retro pro wrestling podcast, as you all know. And, uh, yeah, I'm going to be uh, doing it retro style here, talking about the rise and the fall of Hell in the Cell, the Hell in the Cell concept. I'm going to talk about what precursored Hell in the Cell, what made Hell in the Cell so great, and then the downfall. And then I'm going to talk about how we can revive the concept, how we can make the concept up to date, but also live up to its former glory of the past in today's modern wrestling. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to chopping it up with you guys and talking about that as well. Uh, if you guys have any Hell in the Cell memories, if you guys have any Hell in the Cell complaints, if you guys just want to, you know, blab your mouths off on social media, just about anything, anything at all, then you can do it on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash kicking out at two. Hit the like button if you haven't already. If you have hit the like button, tell a friend to hit the like button. Uh, you can go over on Twitter. Our Twitter handle's at kicking out two, K-I-C-K-N-O-U-T, and the number two. Give us a follow over there. Um, you got any Hell in the Cell thoughts about this Sunday, or do you want to talk about what you like about Hell in the Cell, what you dislike about Hell in the Cell, the concept itself, then go over there on our social media. You can find links to archive shows on both of our social media platforms. You can also find this show on the Retromania Pro Wrestling Podcast Network by searching Retromania with a W. You'll find this show. You'll find Catching Up with Kobe and myself, where we talk about current day wrestling. You'll find uh, Cool Truth with AC. They do some AEW, Impact Wrestling, New Japan stuff. Uh, Monday Night Marks with Hollywood Edwards. Uh, he talks about the Monday Night Wars, Raw, and Nitro. That's a pretty fun show. Go check that out in the archives. You can also find Marking Out the Day's Weekend Warriors, where Kobe and myself, we uh, we talked about WCW Saturday Night and WWF Superstars, the war before the war, so to speak, on Saturdays. Uh, Gaijin Wrestling Radio, Origins of Attitude, Hulkamania is dead. It's been a while since uh, Kobe's dropped some new Hulkamania is dead episodes. I think there's some coming soon. Not sure. But um, there's all kinds of great content over there. Retro pro wrestling, current wrestling, a wrestling smorgasbord of podcast content all over there on the feed by searching Retro Mania with a W. You can find us in our home on Podbean, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, and all podcast platforms available by searching Retro Mania with a W. All right. Cheap plugs out of the way as usual. Um, it's been a while since I've done one of them cheap plugs. But, uh, yeah, let's get into it. Um, Hell in the Cells this Sunday. Hell in the Cell 2021. Roman Reigns, the tribal chief, the head of the table, uh, the, the face of Friday Night SmackDown, if you will, is scheduled to defend his Universal Championship inside Hell in the Cell against Rey Mysterio. And then over on the other side, on the Monday Night Raw side, we have Bobby Lashley defending the WWE Championship against Drew McIntyre yet again. Um, you know, I, 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 I was toying around with the idea of what to do regarding Hell in the Cell. Um, usually Hell in the Cell has been taking place in the fall, September, October. This year they bumped it up to, to June, Father's Day, if you will. And, um, I was, I was trying to figure out what way to, you know, kind of bring things back full circle like I do. I like to look at the pay-per-view calendars. I like to look at what upcoming events are coming so then I could talk about those similar events from the past. And I was trying to figure out, you know, oh, do I watch a Hell in the Cell match, one of my favorites? Maybe Dennis and I sit down and I let him choose a Hell in the Cell. Do we, do, do we you know, wh- what do we do? And so I thought about 
from a fan's perspective, and you know, this is subjective, okay? I could be right or wrong, but I thought from a fan's perspective, a wrestling fan's perspective, I talk about the great memories that made Hell in the Cell great, and then talk about what has watered down the concept, and then talk about what we could do to revive that concept, if you will. And I'm no wrestling booker. I'm no wrestling genius, if you will. This is just me as a fan, as a viewer, watching. Been a fan since I was three years old, 38. So talking 35 years of of wrestling fandom in this brain, um, which I have a special episode for next week that, you know, is going to revolve around my 35-year wrestling fandom. So be on the lookout for that next week. I'll I'll, I'll touch more on that towards the end of the show. Um, yeah, so um, I was just trying to toy, you know, kind of toying around with the ideas. I thought about maybe doing a countdown of like my the top ten Hell in a Cell matches next year. We're going to approach the twenty five year anniversary. Maybe I'll wait to do that then. So th- this time around, I got a little bit more of a structured format here. Flying solo yet again this week. Um, hopefully in a couple weeks, Dennis will be back and we can uh, we can chop it up and 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 talk um you know uh, and watch uh, King of the Ring 1995. I know I've had it scheduled for next week, but plans change, had to rearrange the schedule a little bit. Real life has gotten in the way, and so therefore we're going to push it back to our June 30th uh, episode towards the end of the month, cap off the month of June with uh, King of the Ring 1995 watch along uh with all of you, but um yeah, so you know, when we're, when we're talking about the Hell in the Cell concept, we have to at least touch on the precursors to Hell in the Cell and the things that preceded it and, and and in a way, kind of started drawing up the blueprint for the Hell in the Cell concept. And you look no further than the very first steel cage match that had a top over it. And, you know, before I even get into that... Um, as a fan growing up, steel cage matches for me were the end all be all when it came to, you know, uh, two guys finally settling a score in the steel cage, whether it was, you know, uh, going over the top and out to the floor, escaping through the door, or just pinning, you know, you're making your opponent submit in the cage. That was the end all be all. You knew that a score was going to be settled when two guys went at it out of a steel cage. And, um, that's what I grew up on was the, the the steel cage match concept. Today's steel cage matches to me almost resemble McDonald's playhouses because, um, you know, th- th- there's there's no steel cage matches anymore uh, because of the inventions of Hell in the Cell and then eventually Elimination Chamber, and even the, the up- and even the, the updated War Games concept that both WWE and AEW presented uh, itself. However. Um, the last battle of it matches were the end all be all, and uh, even before you know, before, you know, steel cage matches were a thing. You had the last battle of Atlanta in October of 1983. It had pitted uh, Wildfire Tommy Rich taking on Buzz Sawyer, and those two were involved in a heated rivalry for several months trading victories with each other that involved the United States Championship for Georgia Championship Wrestling. And at one point, um, the match needed, the, the, the rivalry needed to be settled. It needed to, 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 to come to a finish. And the Omni in Atlanta was the spot in October of 83. Tommy Rich, Buzz Sawyer, there was a cage over the top. And then there was a, a uh, like a shark cage with P- Precious Paul Ellery. Now, most of you you know, fans out there listening remember Paul Ellering from his days in the Road Warriors as the manager for Hawk and Animal, the Legion of Doom. Well, before Paul Ellering was paired up with those guys, Paul Ellering was the manager for Buzz Sawyer as a part, and I think it was the early stages of the Legion of Doom faction. 
um, the, the early days of it in Georgia Championship Wrestling. So anyhow, Paul Ellering had been a thorn in Tommy Rich's side. He had been getting involved in, in several of the matches and becoming a deciding factor uh, on behalf of Buzz Sawyer. So the idea was to hang him over a shark cage. And if, and if Tommy Rich had defeated Buzz Sawyer, then Ole Anderson, who was a babyface at the time, which I didn't know this until doing some research, okay? Ole Anderson was a babyface, and Ole Anderson would get five minutes inside the cage itself with Paul Ellering had Tommy Rich uh, defeated Buzz Sawyer, which he did. Um, Tommy Rich was... Um, you know, a hot baby face at that time in the Georgia Territory, and he finally got the best of uh, Buzz Sawyer, and then we would see um, we would see uh, Ole Anderson get his revenge and get a few licks in on Paul Ellering. So that is, as far as I know, upon doing research, the only the very first cage match that had a cover over the top. So in a sense, that was the precursor to Hell in the Cell. Now that concept had grown over the years. Um, in, in professional wrestling with the war games concept, except it was, they added another ring and it was two cages, two rings, and it was two teams. The invention of, in the mind of Dusty Rhodes, Dusty Rhodes had created the war games concept. He had gotten it from a Mad Max movie and he had brought it to life in professional wrestling form. Uh, when Dusty Rhodes, Nikita Koloff, the road warriors and Paul Ellering took on the four horsemen, Ric Flair, Arn Anderson, Tully Blanchard, Lex Luger, and J.J. Dillon in the very first War Games match, which happened to take place in the Omni in Atlanta in July, on July 4th of 1987. And from that point forward, that year, uh, and especially that summer, we would see you know 40 or 50 War Games matches, headline shows each and every night with the horsemen taking on Dusty Rhodes and a different combination of guys. Uh, it would become a very popular concept that was... Jim Crockett and WCW's version of a steel cage blow-off. You know, if you wanted to, things to blow off, if you wanted a rivalry to come to a head, it was inside the War Games. And so we would see countless War Games matches over the years. And then eventually it had become a pay-per-view uh, as a part of the fall brawl. Um, and that was when most fans and, you know, I myself included feel when the concept had been watered down. Because it was it, it it was just a tool to get a bunch of guys in the match. It wasn't a part of the story. It was like, okay, it's that time of year again. It's war games. Let's see who we're going to put in the match. Instead of using it as the way to blow off a rivalry. Um, that would that that's also that also rings true with today's Hell in the Cell concept. Hell in the Cell is a, a yearly event, and it's become something where you use it to blow off. Um, a, a rivalry, um, or not even to blow off a rivalry, but you use it to as like a tool to enhance the rivalry. Last year, we saw Randy Orton and Drew McIntyre involved in a Hell in the Cell match. We saw Bailey and um, and Sasha Banks. Uh, this year, we're going to see Drew and Bobby Lashley, and we're going to see um, Roman Reigns and Rey Mysterio. And I, like I said, I'll get to those in a minute. But the Hell in the Cell concept, and I'll get to the pay per view portion of Hell in the Cell towards the end of this 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 recording um but it's very similar to what wcw did with the war games concept they made a part of fall brawl it became a yearly thing and it was just oh we're gonna pit you know a bunch of guys against each other and uh you know hope for the best so that was kind of where the, the 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 war games concept lost its luster was as a part of the fall brawl pay-per-view events um each and every year and that would go from 1993 to 1998 if you will um, 
And so uh, following that, we would see another form of what would eventually later become Hell in the Cell would be the WCW Thunder Cage. And the first time that I, as a fan, had ever uh, saw this was at the inaugural Halloween Havoc pay-per-view in 1989, which Dennis and I did a watch-along last year. You can find it in the archives uh, over at the Retromania Pro Wrestling Podcast Network by searching Retromania with a W. Another cheap plug there. <laughs> um, it was a It was a large cage that was almost fully enclosed up top, but it surrounded the outside of the ring. So therefore, the, the, the wrestlers could go outside to the floor and use the cage to climb. It was a very big and, you know, I hate to use the word wonky, but it was a very big and unstable cage, if you will. And they had advertised it that, like, you know, you can get electrocuted. Sorry, I couldn't hear what you said. Nobody's asking you, Siri. Jesus Christ. Apparently, I had, I, had, I had summoned Siri. This is what I... I wear this watch, and I forget to take it off when I record. But um, anyhow, um, they had advertised this match that, like, you can, like, electrocute um, your opponents at the top of the cage, if you will, because they had, like, electrical wires and stuff. And the main event was Sting and Ric Flair taking on Terry Funk and the Great Muda as a part of Gary Hart um, Incorporated. Um Gary Hart Enterprises, one of the one of the two, and so that was like the first time that like I saw like a cage like em- encompass the whole entire ring and then the outside of it as well. And they would use that concept from time to time throughout the years in WCW. I remember at Super Brawl in nineteen. Uh, Ric Flair and Vader wrestled in the main event of that year, nineteen ninety four. And there was nothing really like nineteen ninety four. And there was nothing really like, there was no real reason for them to have the cage as a part of their feud, their rivalry. I felt like they already had a strong enough rivalry that they didn't need the feud. But, um, you know, it was a rematch from their classic at Starcade, So they felt like they needed to add a little something to the mix. And it was something that we wouldn't see again in WCW was the Thunder Cage concept. But something that actually preceded that um, was something that debuted not long after War Games in 87 that I forgot to mention, uh, was the Tower of Doom match at the Great American Bash 1988. We saw the Road Warriors, Dr. Death Steve Williams, Rugged Ronnie Garvin, and Gorgeous Jimmy Garvin defeat the team of Al Perez, Ivan Koloff, Kevin Sullivan, Mike Rotunda, and the Russian Assassin with Gary Hart. Um, <clears throat> this was a, a an interesting-looking structure and setup. It was you know, three cages, you know, one on top of the other, on top of the other. And the idea was, was all the, 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 the team members of each cage had to go through all three levels by starting at the top and then eventually making their way out, um, which I thought was a pretty silly idea. So, you know, the, the two guys would start out up top, they'd fight and then the buzzer would go off and then two more guys would, I think there was, I think it was similar to war games. They flipped the coin, the heels won, somebody would come out and then they go back and forth, but it would be, you'd have to go from the top all the way down to the second cage, then to the bottom cage where the ring is. And then you escape out first team to have all their team members escape, win the match. Um, that was kind of silly too, but it was another precursor to what we would see with steel cage matches that had big enclosures. Um, so now let's fast forward to, um, to the creation of Hell in the Cell and the history behind that as well. Uh, it was 1997. 
Bad Blood in your house, uh, October 5th. And uh, the, ma- the main event was Shawn Michaels taking on The Undertaker inside the Hell in the Cell. Now, if you go back and you remember the history behind that match, Shawn was the referee at SummerSlam two months prior. He cost Undertaker the, the, the title against Bret Hart so that he could save his own ass to, to, to continue to wrestle in the United States. Um, even though he wanted Bret Hart out of the picture, he had to sacrifice that. And Undertaker was a sacrificial lamb. And then they went on from there. And Sean, you know, turned heel. And eventually he would form, you know, DX with Triple H and China and Ravishing Rick Rude. And so they had their match at Ground Zero. Things got out of hand. All guys got involved. It was chaos. So they decided, let's put this inside of a cage where Sean can't escape. And that's how the Hell in the Cell was born. Which, to me, was a great way to re- to introduce that concept. Because... It fit with the story. Sean was running from Taker at every chance he got. He'd get little cheap shots in, but for the most part, he was running from Taker. And now Taker had the opportunity to finally have him alone inside the cage, and it was inside the Hell in the Cell. Um, To me, my opinion, it's still the greatest Hell in the Cell match of all time. The chemistry these two guys had um, in this match, the story going into it, with Taker wanting to get the best of Sean, Sean playing the chicken shit heel, Sean using his... unbelievable athletic ability to his advantage and adopting the cell with the match and telling the story. It was just, it was just a top notch match, you know, climbing up top and undertaker slamming them and then him falling off the cage onto the announcer's table. And then eventually leading to the big finish where we saw the introduction of the Kane character, which was the kind of the side story with undertaker that was still in the back of people's mind was his rivalry with Paul Bearer and Paul Bearer, you know, warning Undertaker that your brother is coming. You thought your brother was dead in that fire, but your brother is coming. But, you know, he never really revealed when. And the image of seeing the lights turn out and then the fire and Kane walks out and Vince is like, it's gotta be, that's gotta be Kane. And he makes his way and rips off the door. Um, the stars all aligned. For that very first Hell in the Cell. With the rivalry with Undertaker and Shawn. The chemistry. The way they laid the match out. Then, then eventually the finish. Involving Kane. And introducing Kane into the mix. It made for. Um, it made for a great way to introduce. The Hell in the Cell concept. To the WWF. Uh, and, and television programming at the time. Like I said. It was just. To me. I feel like. Not only is that the greatest Hell in the Cell match. And Dennis has even said it too. Kane's debut is probably the greatest debut in the history of wrestling. And that's hard, that's, that's hard not to argue that because of the buildup and the story behind it and how it was presented and how it was laid out and just the way that they introduced his character. I mean, he had instant credibility, not only being paired with Paul Bearer, but the look, the size. He was comparable to Undertaker, even bigger than Undertaker at one point in that if you look at the 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 view of, of them two standing face to face and Undertaker's kind of looking up at him. So and it was, it was just a very impressive debut and just overall, like I said, the stars aligned. Um, let's talk about King of the ring, 1998 and the hell in the cell match between Undertaker and mankind. The match that really um, made the, the concept famous. I mean, the first one with Undertaker and Sean put it on the map, but this match made the concept famous, and we realized it was going to last forever. And it really, like, 
raise the bar and in a sense like almost almost was you know like a can you top this can you follow that kind of mentality for hell in the cells uh you know to follow this match uh undertaker and mankind scheduled to meet at that king of the ring in 1998 in june and their their rivalry at the time it was a little different than the one that they had in 96 the one in 96 it was the introduction of introduction of the mankind character and mankind uh, was was targeting the Undertaker, and he was finally, you know, getting the best of the Undertakers. You know, it was very rare at that time that you saw guys get the best of the Undertaker as often as they did, and Mankind was that. And eventually, Mankind would align with Paul Bearer, and that's where the Undertaker-Paul Bearer story and the rivalry really starts from was the issues with Mankind. But at this time, uh, Mankind was born from the 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 firing of dude love mcmahon vince mcmahon fired dude love after unsuccessfully defeating stone cold steve austin for the wwf championship which undertaker was involved in that match is kind of like an outside enforcer of sorts to ensure that nobody interfered in the match so the dude love character was gone and that's how they introduced mankind now throughout the better part of a year from i'd say late 97 to early 98 Mick Foley had, you know, portrayed the roles of Mankind, Dude Love, and Cactus Jack, and then he had a long string as Cactus Jack in the rivalry with the New Age Outlaws. Once Cactus Jack was put out to pasture by DX, then came Mankind, or sorry, Dude Love, and Dude Love was the corporate-appointed challenger for the WWF Championship, uh, representing Mr. McMahon, if you will, and when he failed... Then that's when the Mankind character came into play, and Mankind was reunited with Paul Barra, but was also aligned with Kane. So there wasn't really like a whole lot from Undertaker and Mankind to sink their teeth into this time around. Um, maybe just the association of you know, um, you know, Kane being an enemy of the Undertaker, Mankind having history with the undertaker that's how they align the two together the history with paul bear it just kind of worked it was some sort of little you know circle of freaks if you will going after undertaker and then they set up the hell in the cell match there wasn't really any kind of strong build-up for the match um they kind of relied on the two's history and you know mankind reintroducing this character as a heel because he was last time he portrayed the mankind character, he was the lovable babyface. But this time he's a heel, and he's with he's with Paul Bearer. So there, like I said, not a whole lot of build up to get to the Hell in the Cell match. They, like I said, they relied on history, but it was really what took place in this match that not only, you know, really catapulted the career of Mick Foley, but it also really set the bar and over delivered. When it came to Hell in the Cell matches moving forward. And um, as we all know, go back to King of the Ring 1998, the match starts out on the top of the cage. And of course, that was an idea that Mick Foley, you know, had revealed in interviews later on that him and Terry Funk came up with in a car ride. No, why don't you start at the top of the cage there, Mick? And, um, you know, the rest is history. He throws him off the top of the cage. According to Undertaker, in that recent A&E biography of Mick Foley, Mick bugged him for weeks about doing it. And Undertaker didn't feel comfortable with it. And finally, he just said, the hell with it. Let's just do it. And he did it. And, you know, it's it's one of the most famous clips ever shown in the history of, of wrestling. You know, Jim Ross on the call. Good God Almighty, they killed him. As God is my witness, he's broken in half. And that's, you know, that's the famous call right there. That's 
that's um, you know comparable to you know the Giants win the pennant and you know all other great sports calls as, as Mick Foley has described you know that call from Jim Ross being the one that was like the soundtrack of his career. So you had that bump there, and you thought, oh well, shit, match is over, right? They get out, they get the stretchers out, they lift the cage up. Undertaker's still on top of the cage, mind Sorry, you. Sorry, I couldn't hear what you said. No one wants to talk to you, Siri. God damn it. Again, this happened to me. Jesus Christ, Siri. Shut the fuck up. Nope, she's going to talk again. Nope, nope, you're not talking. You're done. All right, anyhow, long story short, um, as I like to say, Undertaker's on top of the cage. They raise the cage up, and you see WWF officials, referees, um, medical personnel, Vince McMahon comes out. It's it's pretty serious business, and you think that the match is over. I mean, they showed the replay a hundred times over, and you could see that he 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 was like a rock skimmed on a lake. He just kind of like bounced off that table and hit more floor than he did table. So, um, they would stretcher him out, and you think that the match is over. But then he gets up, and the cage is already lowered, and he starts climbing up the top of the cage with one bad shoulder. And he gets up top, and he's fighting Undertaker, and Undertaker goes to choke slam him, and he choke slams him through the cage down to the mat. And that's the point where Mick has said in interviews that that was the bump that um, was worse than the, the the initial bump at first, you know, because not only did he choke slam him through the steel cage mesh, but there was a chair on top of that cage, and the chair managed to fall and hit Mick in the face as he was landing, knocked him out cold. And he lost a few teeth, and one of them ended up sticking up out of his nose. So, you think, oh man, match is over, right? Terry Funk's now out. Um, WWE officials, referees, they're back in there. They're trying to get the situation um, handled, and Undertaker cleans house on them. The match doesn't really... I mean, the match continues, but it's nothing really to write home about other than, you know, the, the, the thumbtack spot where Mick takes the thumbtacks twice to the back. Um, from Undertaker, and then, you know, Undertaker delivers a tombstone, and then that's the end of it, you know. But those three moments right there are what make the match. Now, the question I posed on social media um, would be, you know, um, had Mick not taken any of those bumps, had Mick Foley, would this Hell in the Cell match be regarded as, um, as it is today? Because it's one of those things where, um, you know, had the, had the match... It's 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 a question that a lot of people have asked. Had this match been, hadn't we not seen those bumps? Would this would this Hell in the Cell rank up there as one of the top of all time? Now, for me personally, had we not seen any of those bumps, or maybe we saw something similar, you know, not something as dangerous. I think it could. I think it would. It wouldn't be talked about as strongly as it is today. It might not have made the career of Mick Foley. But it would be looked at as one of the 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 highlight matches of both of their careers and their rivalry. Um, I went to social media and I asked that question. Ricky Edwards said, "No, it wouldn't. You can barely remember last year's cell match. Nothing but a watered down pussy fest." Um, I'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> John Edwards writes, "As far as original, it would have been totally forgotten about. It was great, but it was great for those three or four big moments of the toss to the table, the slam through the top, Foley's comeback, and the tax. Take all those away, and you have nothing memorable at all. But the same could be said for most well-regarded ladder, cell, or cage matches. Take the biggest spots away from any match, and it's not as good. I mean, you make a strong point there, John. Um, it's hard not to argue that, but I think Foley and Undertaker had such great chemistry." 
uh, you know, in their rivalry a couple of years prior that they probably would have created something special for this particular Hell in the Cell match. Would it have been as special as what we got with those three big bumps? Probably not, but I think it still would be highly regarded. Would it have catapulted Mick Foley's career to greater heights? No, but I think Mick would have gotten there. I think Mick would have done something else later on down the line to to get noticed, to put him over the top, if you will, um, because his character was becoming more and more popular. This just kind of sent it over the top. So I think it would have taken him longer to get to where he where he where he got and his legendary status, but um, it it wouldn't have been from this match. That's just me personally, and then. Um, I asked, I also posed the question, actually, I'll get to that later, as far as uh, freshening up the concept, John also replied about that, but that's another story. So, now the question, like I said, it poses, would this match be highly regarded had Mick Foley had not taken those three big bumps? I think it wouldn't be as regarded as an all-time great Hell in a Cell match, but it would it would be discussed because of the chemistry that Undertaker and Mick Foley had in their rivalry two years prior. I think they still would have done something special to make that match special and make it stand out. Wouldn't have put Foley over the top like it did, but it still would get people talking, in my opinion. If anything, it probably would have been a little more it it would have it would have been a little more ultra violent without the big high spots that we saw. Um Similar to their boiler room brawl, um, but who knows? That's you know we're talking we're t- we're talking twenty three years later here. Okay, so you know I'm just you know playing the part of revisionist history. Um, now we move on from that match. Okay, and like I said, that match set the bar, over delivered, really made the career of Mick Foley, and. As a young teenager, about a year later, they announce Undertaker, Big Boss Man, Hell in the Cell, WrestleMania 15. Okay? So everyone's expecting some sort of crazy stunt because of what Mick did. And as a teenager, this match sucked. It was just awful. The two didn't have chemistry. The story just was eh. Undertaker was a heel with his Ministry of Darkness. He was going after Mr. McMahon and the corporation. Mr. McMahon puts the big boss man into into the role of being the one to take out the Undertaker. Inside Undertaker's Hell in the Cell kind of creation playground, if you will. And there was it was just flat. It was very flat. And then to make up for how flat the match was, they 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 create the stunt of the boss man being hung from the cell with a noose, and it just it didn't sit well with with anyone and it was one of those things where could they could they have totally shit the bed on the hell in the cell concept or were the first two good enough that this was just a little bump in the road maybe they'll get past this and move on and eventually they did um to what would be the first time I had ever witnessed Hell in the Cell in person? Cactus Jack, Triple H, No Way Out 2000 for the WWF Championship with Cactus Jack's career on the line. Um, I've talked about it. Chris Donovan and I did a watch along of this match last year on the 20th anniversary. This was a lot of fun. Um, they kind of brought up Mick's history inside the cell as a way to hype this match, how he'll do anything but under the Cactus Jack persona. I thought this was something that um, was done really well. 
uh, Triple H winning and, and, and ending Cactus Jack's career was a shock as a teenager, being there in person live, but um, the story was great. They really followed up well from their, their classic street fight at the Royal Rumble. I thought that that couldn't get topped in New York City at Madison Square Garden in, in the, at the Royal Rumble for the WWF Championship a month prior, but they did in this match with the, the, the flaming barbed wire bat being up on top of the cage and Hunter back body dropping Cactus through the cage and putting him through the ring and really solidifying Hunter as a, a main player because you also have to remember too, this was during a period of time when Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Undertaker both were out of action with injuries. Undertaker had some hip and some back issues, and Steve Austin had recently had just uh, um, had neck surgery after the um, the Survivor Series hit and run uh, angle that they did. So they were relying on the talent that they had, and Hunter really stepped up. And it, if it wasn't for Hunter, Cactus Jack, Mick Foley, you know, if it wasn't for Mick Foley, really helping elevate Hunter, I don't think Hunter would be the the um the 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 I mean I I think eventually he'd get there but I don't think he would have gotten there as quickly um as the as the the the, the top draw that he was at that time um you know people say that Triple H and The Rock that was the rivalry that made those two and that's probably the rivalry that got people noticing Triple H on a main event level or to get to a main event level but Mick Foley put him in the main event simple as that his performance at the Royal Rumble putting over Triple H and then of course this Hell in the Cell match. Like I said, I was there in person. This was a lot of fun. And the story going into it, Cactus's career on the line, Hunter uh, putting the title on the line, WrestleMania implications. This was a big deal. This was a very big deal for me as a teenager. I was I was crawling out of my skin. Uh, couldn't wait to go see this match. Couldn't wait to, to, to be in a pay-per-view. It was my first pay-per-view I ever attended. So this was a lot of fun. And this is another match that makes hell in the cell great and, and I, I can't, I can't stress enough that you know each of those three matches that I just kind of recapped: Sean and Taker, Taker and Foley, and then Triple H and Cactus Jack. Each had individual different reasons as to why they 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 helped make the concept great. So that hiccup, that speed bump in the road, that Undertaker and Big Boss Man had endured and encountered with Hell in the Cell at WrestleMania 15, Hunter and Cactus picked it right back up. And it was just a matter of like finding the right guys with the right chemistry to be in that type of a match. Um, they didn't have that Undertaker and Bossman, but you know Hunter and Cactus did. Um, let's move on to another match that made Hell in the Cell great. And at the time, I didn't realize it, but you know, revisionist history, uh, looking back on it, I feel like this match flies under the radar when it comes to Hell in the Cell matches, great Hell in the Cell matches. And I'm referring to Brock Lesnar defending the WWE Championship against The Undertaker, the American badass from No Mercy in the fall of 2002. Um, this was the first match where the Hell in the Cell match, we didn't see a crazy over-the-top stunt. The violence was contained inside the cage. A lot of people, myself included, expected to see some type of, of violent, over-the-top stunt um, you know, performed in this match. And I'll be honest with you, the build-up for this match was piss poor. Okay, 
You know, Undertaker and Brock Lesnar, if you remember, they battled for the WWE Championship at the Unforgiven pay-per-view a month prior. There was a no contest. Both guys were, you know, disqualified. Things were out of control. They closed the pay-per-view with Undertaker, throwing Brock through the, the set, and they rolled credits. And that right there was the impetus to book Undertaker and Brock inside Hell in the Cell to contain the violence. But then WWE Creative decided to put their own little cherry on top of the shit Sunday and create this storyline where Paul Heyman and Brock Lesnar enlisted in the services of a female to accuse The Undertaker of sexual assault, therefore distracting him from his upcoming Hell in the Cell match. On top of that, breaking The Undertaker's hand. And it was... It was silly. It was laughable. It was one of those. And, and and on the other side, on Raw, Undertaker's brother Kane was battling Triple H for the World Heavyweight Championship. And, un, and Kane was accused of murdering a girl. So it was like, it, it, was, it was just a double dose of horseshit storytelling, in my opinion. I felt like they had enough to, to you know, put in their, um, they had enough for their stories to make the the rivalry in the match watchable I feel. I feel like the the Undertaker and Brock being in the Hell in the Cell match because they couldn't decide who was the winner in their previous match and things got out of control. That was enough right there. Brock breaking Undertaker's hand, that was enough right there. They just kind of overdid it. Um so like I said, expecting a a over the top stunt for this match because we had seen just about every Hell in the Cell match, someone climbed to the top of the cell, and we didn't get that. And I was a little disappointed as a youngster some 19 years ago that we didn't get to see that type of a match. Um, but looking back on it, and it took me a couple of years to realize it after I'd seen it a few times, this match was ultra-violent. This match told a great story. This match, you know, embodied what a steel cage match stipulation personifies where you you settle it in the middle of the cage okay paul Heyman and brock lesnar may have played the mind games with undertaker with this chick accusing him of sexual assault um they 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 may have broken undertaker's arm um, they may have listed in the services of Matt Hardy at the time to to be a distraction to Undertaker. Many people thought that Undertaker was going to throw Matt Hardy off the top of the hell in the cell to have that big stunt. I personally thought, and this is crazy for me to think this, that Brock Lesnar was going to F5 Undertaker either on top of the cell or off the cell through the announcer's table as like, a, you, know, a, um, you know, an act of irony when Undertaker threw Mankind off the top of the cell couple years prior so it was one of those things where at the time I didn't appreciate the story that was told but after watching it a few times after that I I think this is one of the the more underrated fly under the radar type of hell in the cell matches out there because um, these two just beat the shit out of each other inside hell in the cell they destroyed each other um, Undertaker bled buckets to the point where, looking back on it now, you you wonder how he made it out alive uh, because he bled so much. And, you know, Brock 
they told it, Brock told the story of working on Undertaker's hand, his broken hand. He had a cast and just beat the crap out of it and wore him down. And the younger, stronger, more aggressive, athletic, you know, competitor, you know, went to such great violent lengths to win the match. It was to me. It was a great story told. A great, as, as, as sick as this may sound, a great violent story told. So this is one of those Hell in the Cell matches that if I'm going to recommend you go watch one, you watch this one. Um, Undertaker, Brock Lesnar, No Mercy 2002. It was just so violent and 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 so, in some cases, disturbing to watch the way that the the, the way these two really, really, really put a beating on each other um that it's it's not one of those matches that um that they'll that they that they showcase or highlight to this day when it comes to hell in the cell matches because it was so violent and it's it kind of goes against what they represent now as a company so um but to me very underrated match itself um some other notable hell in the cell matches that i felt really made the concept great that worked within their stories are um, Triple H and Shawn Michaels from Bad Blood 2004. They had a series of matches at the end of 2003 going into 2004 that were just um, all-time classics. I remember Shawn and Triple H had a a match on Monday Night Raw where the finish was kind of undecided. Shawn allegedly won, but his shoulders were on the mat at the same time and they had to come up with a, a solution, so they had a last man standing match at the Royal Rumble, and neither guy could fucking, you know, reach the ten count, so it was a double. Chris Benoit won the Royal Rumble that year. They kind of inserted him into the mix, and it was a three way at WrestleMania. Despite what Benoit did, it's still a classic, even though I don't condone what the man did. Don't no hate mail, okay? Don't send your hate tweets to at uh, kicking out too, because uh, I won't. I won't answer them. I'll I'll block you. I will. Um, but. Um, Everything just kind of culminated. It was very personal. These two couldn't get enough of each other. They, they they both cost each other opportunities at the World Heavyweight Championship. And then finally, Sean and Triple H had to settle their score, and they did inside Hell in the Cell. This was probably, at the time, the longest Hell in the Cell match. It went over 40 minutes. And these two guys just beat the shit out of each other. Ladders and tables and chairs and... Um, it was it. There wasn't any crazy stunts where somebody flew off the top of the cage, but another, uh, a good example of using the hell in the cell. Because, like I said, it was personal with Sean and Hunter. They had a history. They had a history on TV as friends, as enemies. So it was very fitting that they said, "You know what? We got to scrap this. We got to we got to end this right now." And it's going to be inside Hell in the Cell. And I think that's what makes that's another fly under the radar type of Hell in the Cell that doesn't get talked about enough um i guess you could watch that too if i recommend another hell in the cell bad blood 2004 Shawn michaels and triple h inside hell in the cell and i believe the winner would become the number one contender for the world heavyweight championship that was held by chris benoit at the time so um hunter and sean really 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 told a great story in that match um another example of how you you it made sense to put the hell in the cell stipulation into their rivalry um Another example of the Hell in the Cell stipulation working and making the match great was a year later, Triple H and Batista at Vengeance 2005. You go back and you remember the story of um, Triple H kind of grooming Batista as a part of Evolution, but Batista kind of outshining him, and then eventually Batista not, you know, 
not acquiescing to Hunter's demands as the leader of Evolution, eventually winning the Royal Rumble, and then he defeats him for the title at WrestleMania. And then he would defeat him the next month at Backlash. And Hunter, who at that time had a reputation behind the scenes, allegedly, for being someone that didn't want to put guys over, he had no problem putting Batista over two pay-per-views in a row. And so... Back in 2005, 16 years ago, I thought to myself, well, there's no way. Batista's going to have this little run, and Hunter's going to get the belt back. And what we got was a very ultra-violent match that really, really, really cemented. To me, it cemented Batista as a main eventer. Everyone thinks that WrestleMania was it, but for me personally, this match really did it because they showed a ultra-violent side to Batista, at the, you know, and Hunter was the, the sacrificial lamb. It was a situation where Hunter had a history in Hell in the Cell matches. And the only way that he could defeat Batista and gain back his world title was to get him inside Hell in the Cell and defeat him on his terms in his type of match. And Batista was the younger, smarter, more athletic competitor that outsmarted Triple H and eventually, you know, outdid him in the in in the violence factor. The, the the barbed wire baseball bat and then you had or the barbed wire two by four. I think you had a barbed wire steel chair, the steel steps. Uh you saw a lot of violence in that match that made sense. And Batista beat Hunter in his own game really, I think, catapulted him to another level. You know, he was start he was he was on the rise. It was little by little. He was getting there, in my opinion. Now everyone you know, everyone's got a different opinion. Like I said, people think WrestleMania was where he blew up. I think it was this match. And I think Hell in the Cell helped that. And it, it helped that he was in there with Hunter, and Hunter helped make him. Um, as time would go on, um, we would kind of see the, the, the Hell in the Cell matches um, kind of become formulaic. They were still good, but they just kind of become formulaic. Um, DX, Sean and Hunter against the McMahon family in the big show. Um Another very kind of ultra-violent, but they kind of added some comedic elements to the match. Um, that's a fun match to watch, but it it's one of those things where um, if they didn't put it in Hell in the Cell, it would have been okay as well. Um, then we would see uh, Batista and Undertaker kind of sell their score in Hell in the Cell, um, or try to at least, at Survivor Series in 2007. And yes... Both guys had great chemistry. I was at their match at WrestleMania earlier that year. Match of the night. I would even go as far as to say match of the year. They stole the show. Um, so I was excited to see them in the Hell in the Cell. Both very ultra-violent. Like I said, had great chemistry. Some unsettled business between the guys on television. Both guys had suffered injuries at one point. And then they finally hooked it up for the title. A match to settle it all. And then Edge interferes and rears his ugly head. And gets involved and uh, causing a, a cause causing you know the title situation to be in flux. And then we move on to SummerSlam 2008, and that was the match where that was probably the last time you saw any kind of semblance of the old Hell in the Cell concept, um, where it was very ultra violent. You know, Edge and Undertaker had had a rivalry for a number of months. Um, Undertaker defeating him at uh, at WrestleMania for the title. Um, they kind of traded the belt back and forth. Uh, and then Edge ending Undertaker's career. But then uh, about a month later, um, Edge went to marry Vicky Guerrero. And it was revealed that Edge was cheating on Vicky Guerrero, who was the general manager of SmackDown. So Vicky Guerrero reinstates The Undertaker as punishment 
for Edge uh, and sets up a match inside Hell in the Cell for SummerSlam. Now, that's a fun match. And like I said, it's probably the match that really was the turning point from making it more ultra-violent to very, like, cartoonish. Um, Undertaker would defeat Edge, and he would choke slam him through the ring, and then you would see this big engulfing flame of fire as if Edge went to the depths of hell. And that was where, like, the beginning of the concept had just kind of gotten stale. Now, before I get into how the concept had further gotten stale... Um, I want to talk about just some instances and times where I felt like Hell in the Cell could have been utilized in certain situations to help certain scenarios out. Um, for instance, um, the relaunch of ECW in 2006, uh, I felt like in the early days of that relaunch, when they were using more of the ECW originals, um, you know, constructing some kind of Hell in the Cell match with them. Uh, RVD, Sabu, Tommy Dreamer, those guys, if you in- included them in that type of a match, um, I-, I think it would have added a little bit more excitement to the already um, stale ECW relaunch because I felt like it was like a half. It was the ECW relaunch uh, is-, is regarded as one of the worst things WWE had ever done. Um, but in the early days of it, in the, the, the first month and a half, two months or so, they kind of dipped their toe in the water a little bit when it came to adopting that type of format for the, for the programming. The hardcore wrestling style is what ECW was originally known for. So I feel like if they kind of put a little WWE dust on it with the hell in the cell, maybe they could have found a way to, um, you know, kind of add some credibility to the the brand itself. Maybe RVD defending the title in a Hell in the Cell match. Now, I know he was pulled over, arrested for drugs. They had to strip him of the title. They gave it to Big Show. Um, But they still tried to adopt that hardcore style. Sabu had some matches with Big Show. Maybe seeing that type of a match in that environment, in that format, would have been kind of cool. But... um, they, I don't think that they looked at ECW as an equal brand to Raw and SmackDown. I think they looked at it as like as a step down, if you will. Um, individuals that I thought could have benefited and could have also helped make the Hell in the Cell concept stronger, RVD being one of them. Now, he was involved in the very first Elimination Chamber in 2002. He made the... He helped make that match famous with the other five guys in it, with the way that he had adopted his style to the, the structure. I think that's something he could have done in, in, in the Hell in the Cell concept as well. Um, I was kind of surprised that we didn't see someone like him involved in a match like that sooner. Um, now, personally for me, this, this, this scenario, this situation, I thought was going to be um, a perfect way to cap off one of the greatest rivalries in all of WWF, WWE history was the Edge and Christian Hardy's Dudley boys inside Hell in the Cell. You know, they had done tables matches. They'd done ladder matches. They'd done TLC matches. And, you know, there was only so many of those matches they could do. And I thought that following the TLC 2 match at some, I'm sorry, not SummerSlam, WrestleMania 17, that we would have gotten, um, we would have gotten a bigger blow off with these three teams, you know, inside Hell in the Cell, you know, adding adding a more ultra violent element to their rivalry. Like, you know, um, 
not not being able to settle the score with tables, ladders, and chairs, but finally getting it done inside Hell in the Cell. As a kid, I was very bloodthirsty <laughs> for that. Um, Jeff Hardy, the image of him going off the top of the cage, a la Mick Foley, the Dudley Boys, you know, using tables inside Hell in the Cell, ladders and chairs with Edge and Christian, and just I, I thought that it would have been a concept that would have been a fitting way to put up a, a, a finality to the Dudleys, the Hardys, and Edge and Christian, something that I think was a missed opportunity. But at the same time, if you look back on it in hindsight, maybe it wouldn't have worked. Maybe it wouldn't have been something that um, would have been a positive outcome for their rivalry. Maybe it's just you know better to leave well enough alone with Edge and Christian, the Hardys, and the Dudleys in their TLC matches. So, um, But yeah, as a teenager... Man, I was kind of jonesing to see Hell in the Cell with those three teams. I could only imagine the, the crazy stuff they would have been able to do. Um, you know, the, the the cage itself, let's talk about the evolution of it, okay? The evolution of this cage, it was, you know, they say 20 feet high, and it was enclosed. Um, you know, it was an impressive-looking structure. In 2006, they, they made the cage bigger, and it was a little more reinforced, you know, climbing on top of it, you could see when guys used to climb on top of the, the very first one, the original one, obviously evident of Mick Foley going through the cage. You know, guys' foot feet would, would go through the structure. It wasn't as sturdy up top. They made it a little more sturdy up top. Um, and then they made the cage taller. So I think once WWE was starting to go more towards the PG route at the end of 2000. Well, they started, they, they introduced this new look cage in 2006, but once they really started going more towards the PG, the PG route in 2008, towards the end, anytime Hell in the Cell would come into play, I think making it bigger was their way of compensating for the less violence factor, as be, it being more impressive looking cosmetically. That's just my take. I could be wrong, but um, you didn't see a whole lot of stunts up top anymore. You saw a lot of it kind of, you know, start and stop inside the cage, which I guess is like an old school steel cage element to it. But, you know, once you set the bar with, with all these guys going up top, sometimes I feel like you have to deliver. Otherwise, it's a giant disappointment, as bloodthirsty as that may seem. And then eventually they changed the color recently, a couple years ago, from being silver to red, which makes it look like a McDonald's playhouse. And um, I thought that was stupid. Okay, I just think um, I know they tried to cosmetically make it look better because of the the less than appealing um, presentation that the matches would have inside the cage. You know, it was less violent. So they thought, oh, well, let's just make it a different color so that, you know, it looks very violent. You know, the blood red color, even though, you know, the guys don't, you know, uh, cut themselves these days. Um I just thought that was a, a poor attempt at trying to um, evolve the concept and evolve the look of it, if you will. Now, um, when we talk about evolving the concept, um, back in 2009, they started um, the Hell in the Cell pay-per-view era, uh, where every year there would be a Hell in the Cell pay-per-view and there would be Hell in the Cell matches already scheduled to take place on this card. The first year, they had three. I believe we had um, John Cena and Randy Orton, Undertaker and CM Punk, and DX versus Legacy. Now, all three of those matches, well, maybe with the exception of DX and Legacy, the other two matches I felt like didn't need the Hell in the Cell concept. Um, 
I felt like it was forced. Like many of those Hell in the Cell pay-per-views, the concept was forced. There's very few of those Hell in the Cell matches from the Hell in the Cell pay-per-view era where I I enjoyed them thoroughly. A lot of them were just, you know, oh, let's just put them in the cage so that we can blow it off that way or, you know, add a little more excitement to something that needs some juice. Um, I, I didn't like it. I, I, I think, and I'll get into, you know, how we can make the gimmick better but um i just thought it was um i i just didn't like the um, yeah bottom line i just didn't like the hell i don't like the hell in the cell pay-per-view concept i think the hell in the cell gimmick should be used to help you know make a a rivalry more important make a story you know enhance a storyline as opposed to trying to fix a storyline or just because hey we got a hell in the cell pay-per-view let's just throw these guys in i don't think it's necessary in, in that regard, it could be, it, and it also could be something that doesn't have to be used every single year. It could be put on a different pay per view, maybe to sell a, a different pay per view than just Hell in the Cell. Um, but there are a few of those, there are a few of those Hell in the Cell matches from the Hell in the Cell pay per view era that I thoroughly enjoyed, that I thought really stood out from the rest. Um, Shane McMahon, Kevin Owens, they had a Falls Count Anywhere Hell in the Cell match. Which once you knew they put the false count on a stipulation, you knew they were going to make it to the top of the cage. You knew Shane was going to do some crazy stunt. I thought the story going into it was good. Shane wanting revenge on Kevin Owens for attacking his father. Shane being the general manager of SmackDown at the time. I thought it was a, a, a nice setup and a good way to introduce the Hell in the Cell concept. The finish was great. Sami Zayn pulling Kevin Owens out and Shane McMahon crashing through the table. I thought it was a, a good way to um, adopt the, the Hell in the Cell into their storyline. Um, another great Hell in the Cell, another good Hell in the Cell match from today's modern standards would be the Usos and the New Day in a tag team match for the cha- the SmackDown Championships inside Hell in the Cell. I thought it was very innovative. I thought all four of those guys were hungry. They wanted to make their mark and 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 make people remember. And I thought they did an excellent job at making that Hell in the Cell match fun to watch. It wasn't as ultra violent, but these those four guys, those two teams, they know how to hook it up. They got great chemistry, and they did a great job with Hell in the Cell, um, adding that to their rivalry and, and and making it memorable. I thought it was one of the very few good Hell in the Cell matches. Um, the most recent Hell in the Cell pay per view last year that saw uh, Jay Uso and Roman Reigns in an I Quit match. Now. This match wasn't so ultra-violent, and I feel like they didn't need the Hell in the Cell concept, but it didn't hurt it either. Um, the story of Reigns wanting his cousin to acknowledge him as you know the head of the table, the one that provides for the family, and really pulling at the heartstrings. It was in a Thunderdome-type setting, and Reigns, you, you had a lot of mic work during the match with the psychology of Reigns trying to make Uso quit, using his brother as a pawn to do that. I thought it was very well done. It really, really, for me, put the Roman Reigns tribal chief head of the table character over the top as like a a, a top heel. And I've said this, I just said it recently, his character has been the best thing during the pandemic. Um, the, 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 the progression, the rise of the Roman Reigns tribal chief character with Paul Heyman. And I think that match against Jey Uso really solidified that. It was violent under today's standards, and it really helped make Roman Reigns a top guy for real this time. 
Um, and I and like I said, the sell. Maybe they didn't need the sell. Maybe they just kept it at I quit, and that was the end of it. But at the same time, it didn't hurt it either. So um, those are some of the the the, the positive. Uh, Hell in the Cell matches. Some of the ones, the very few that I like from the current day, you know, Hell in the Cell concept being a pay-per-view. Now, you know, when there's good, there's obviously bad. And when we talk about the fall of the Hell in the Cell pay-per-view concept, um, look no further than to, um, you know, two matches here. Oh, before I do that, let's talk about the women because the women were involved in Hell in the Cell. That was another thing. Another way for them to showcase the women as well as make the hell in the cell concept mean something which i get in theory but it just the execution i didn't think was the best was when they uh, you know had sasha and charlotte at hell in the cell in boston in 2016 put an end to their rivalry they had traded the belt back and forth and putting the women in the hell in the cell for the first time they made it out to be a major milestone and i think they did a solid job of it but it just i wouldn't say it fell flat but it wasn't as big of a deal as many people had made it out to be. It was a good match, but they... And I'm not saying that the women shouldn't be in the Hell in a Cell because I think, you know, if you get a good story and a, a good build-up that makes sense to put them in that type of a match, then go with it. But it was just, you know, Sasha and Charlotte trading wins back and forth, and then all of a sudden they're like, oh, well, let's put them in Hell in a Cell because no women have ever done it before. And... They focused more on that than they did on the actual rivalry between the two, I felt like. And in, in a way, it just kind of made the Hell in the Cell meaningless. Um, but a solid, you know, effort nonetheless. Not great, but solid. And the same goes for Sasha and Becky. You know, when they brought Sasha back a couple of years ago after her hiatus from WrestleMania and they inserted her into the rivalry with Becky, they made it personal. I thought they were doing a great job. And I thought, oh, this is, this is a good way to... Um, get things going for them. And then they threw them right into Hell in the Cell. And I thought, couldn't you have built this up a little bit longer? Couldn't you have waited for this? Or maybe you don't even need this. Um, granted, they worked their asses off. They, they, they entered, it was an entertaining match, but it was another situation where the Cell concept in their story felt forced. So... Um, solid efforts, not bad from the women, but I feel like just like any other match with the men, if there's a good story and a good buildup and it's needed or necessary for the cell, then do it. If not, then don't, don't force it and don't force the hell in the cell pay-per-view concept either. Um, but like I said, when there's good, there's bad and there's a couple of bad ones here and I'm not going to name them all, but, um, two in particular that come to mind was in 2018, Roman Reigns faced off against Braun Strowman, and Braun Strowman officially cashed in his money in the bank ahead of time for the championship in that match. And Mick Foley was the guest referee, and I know they were trying to, you know, sprinkle in a little, you know, hell in the cell nostalgia with Foley involved to try and really amp up the violence factor, but it really fell short. It felt forced, and then to make matters worse, Brock... Um, made a run in and got involved, ripped the door off, similar to what they did with Kane. And Brock came in and beat both guys up and, you know, beat up Mick. And it was deemed a no contest inside Hell in the Cell, which I thought Hell in the Cell had no rules. I thought anything goes. So when they deemed it a no contest, that really kind of deflated the, the, the concept. And then 
it got worse with Seth Rollins and the Fiend Bray Wyatt. Um, first of all, biggest mistake they made, putting that match in the red light with the Fiend's little red light thing. I thought that was a horrible idea. Given the fact that the cage is already red, cosmetically it's already difficult to watch the match with it being red with the lights on. Now you put a red light inside of a red cage, it, it was just pointless. I could have closed my eyes and enjoyed the match more listening to it in like podcast form than watching it. But um, the kicker obviously being that there was a disqualification in the match, that the referee called the match because Seth Rollins was too violent Um you know, using a steel chair, uh, you know, banging a steel chair over a toolbox that was laid on top of the head of the fiend to end the fiend. Um, yeah, it was just bad, and it and it really put a bad taste in most fans' mouth. Not only for the fiend character, but for the Hell in the Cell concept itself. And I think that was also when the fans really got sick of babyface Seth Rollins, and they had enough of him. But this was another situation where. Okay, the story with Seth and the Fiend was good enough starting out that you didn't need to introduce the Hell in the Cell concept. It was the first match in their rivalry, and all of a sudden they're inside Hell in the Cell. It wasn't necessary. It just wasn't. I didn't think that they needed it. And it made for... That was the point where I was just like, you know what, they need to end these Hell in the Cell pay-per-views and just bring the concept out You know when when it when it calls for it. And that's where I go into now um, how to, you know, restore the concept to what it used to be. You know, I know we live in a different age in wrestling, especially in WWE. It's, you know, PG, but they've kind of, you know, walked the fine line when it comes to the violence factor. I, I, I think that a yearly Hell in the Cell pay-per-view isn't needed anymore. It's not, but, you know, who am I to, who am I to, to say that, you know, WWE shouldn't produce it on a yearly basis. You know, they're the ones with the analytics and the statistics and the numbers. And if it does well and their numbers show that it does well, then I guess it makes sense for them to do it. If they're making money off it, then continue to do it. But um, it loses its it loses its lore. It loses its luster. It doesn't make the match feel any special anymore. It hasn't for the last 12, 13 years, I feel like. Um, so introducing it, it's on special occasions, I think, helps. I think, you know, uh, in a rivalry that needs it, that, you know, you settle the score, you know, something that's long and drawn out and built up, you know, properly, you put it in that environment, something that, you know, whether it's for a title or it's a personal rivalry, then that's when you kind of plug it in there. Um, I know in, in recent years, Hell in the Cell has been a part of WrestleMania, uh, end of an era. Triple H Undertaker with Shawn Michaels as the referee. I was at that Hell in the Cell match. That was at that WrestleMania. Um, albeit it was under the PG standards of WWE. They told an amazing story. You know, feeding off of a year prior with Triple H trying to end Undertaker's streak, his career. Shawn Michaels being conflicted as the referee. His best friend, one of his greatest rivals, The Undertaker. He's got to call it down the middle. Even though his greatest rival, The Undertaker, ended his career... It was such an amazing story that I almost forgot at times that they were inside the Hell in the Cell match. But um, two guys that really helped make the concept famous, being Undertaker and Triple H with Sean, who was a part of the first one. It all made sense. The stars aligned. That's one of the very few PG-era Hell in the Cell matches that I enjoyed. 
Uh, and then, you know, WrestleMania 32, Undertaker and Shane McMahon. Um, that was a situation where they needed to do something big for that show to fill up the arena, the stadium, because they were in a, they were in a position where um, that WrestleMania was in danger of being one of the worst. Now, it wasn't a terrible WrestleMania, but you had John Cena out. Couldn't wrestle. You had Randy Orton out. You had Seth Rollins. Daniel Bryan just retired. That's four big names you could have plugged into four different spots. Granted, Cena made an appearance, you know, doing a running with The Rock, and it was, you know, a controlled type of situation. But, um, you know, they, 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 you know, all hands on deck type of situation. They called Shane McMahon to return. And I believe it was Undertaker that asked him to return because they were asking Undertaker what he wanted to do for, for WrestleMania. And I believe he kind of his name out there doing something with him. So... Undertaker, Shane McMahon, the story going the story going into it, Shane wanted, you know, his stock back in the company. He had to defeat Undertaker to do it, otherwise he was gone. They do it inside of Hell in the Cell. It had potential, but it wasn't it had potential to be a very good storyline. I felt like if Undertaker reacted to the idea that Vince was using him as a pawn and maybe there was something on the line for the Undertaker going into that match it would have made a little bit more sense but instead Undertaker almost treated Shane McMahon like a mortal enemy going into this match you know if if, if Undertaker had something to lose if Vince was the puppeteer and he was forcing both these guys to be in this match and there was some sort of family ploy that was involved in it and you kind of peel back the curtain a little bit with Undertaker and Vince's relationship, then I think there would have been a little bit more interest. But, you know, they didn't even follow up with the stipulation. Undertaker defeats Shane. He's supposed to be gone from WWE. And Shane McMahon showed up the next night on Raw, and Vince allowed him to run Monday Night Raw. They they they, they dropped the ball there. Um, the match wasn't anything special. The only thing I remember from that match was Shane's entrance with his kids and his fall off the top of the cage. That was it. So um, that was a situation where the Hell in a Cell concept was used to boost ticket sales. It helped because Shane McMahon's announcement to WrestleMania, you know, they sold an additional 23,000 tickets in that huge dome. So yeah, I guess it worked. But it was another situation where it was forced. Um, they could have followed up on that better. And they could have made the the concept feel more important, but it was just a backdrop that really was kind of lost in the shuffle. Um, but like I said, um, if 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 you want to restore this concept, you allow a little bit of the violence factor to come back into play. I get it; it's where you know the the violence is a little bit more controlled from a Hollywood choreographed type of standpoint, especially you know in recent, especially you know in recent in the in the last year, you know. In the Thunderdome without a live audience and they were able to control some of that stuff with crash pads and things like that and different camera angles and, you know, pre-recording of things and things like that. So, um, but I feel like the Hell in the Cell concept needs to be something that's like a special thing. Once in a while you bring it out for a major rivalry. Um, don't make it a yearly pay-per-view. Um, make it, uh, you know, something special that people are going to look forward to when it is announced. Now, with that being said, Hell in the Cells this Sunday, two Hell in the Cell matches. We have Drew McIntyre and Bobby Lashley 
for the WWE Championship, and we have Roman Reigns and Rey Mysterio for the Universal Championship. Let me start with the WWE Championship, Drew and Bobby. I think these two have great chemistry in ring together. They had a great match at WrestleMania. They had a great match at Backlash last year um, inside the empty performance center. I thought those those two tore it up. Um, but I'm kind of sick of seeing the two of them wrestle, I'll be honest with you. They need to pump the brakes a little bit. Um and they, the, the, the stipulation going into this match is if Drew doesn't win, he's no longer allowed to get an opportunity at the championship to face Bobby Lashley as long as Lashley's the champion. If I'm going to pick one, I'm, I'm going to go with Lashley here. I think they're, they're serious about him. And hopefully, um, hopefully with these two guys, the, the, the violence factor is upped to a certain level. Because I feel like as good as Bobby Lashley has been with the WWE Championship and he's had, you know, solid showings and victories as the champion at WrestleMania, at WrestleMania Backlash, um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, there hasn't been a match that has quote-unquote like stamped, you know, him as the champion, in my opinion, okay? I mean, he decisively defeated Drew and Drew wasn't, Drew didn't tap out at WrestleMania. He pinned Braun and Drew didn't lose, okay? So, it's one of those situations where I feel like, in similar to what Triple H went through when he wrestled McFoley, we need to see a different side of him. And in this type of environment, I think that that's very possible. And if he can decisively and violently defeat Drew without making Drew look like a job boy, um, and I hate to use that term, but without making Drew less than, you know, then Bobby Lashley, I feel like, will have a more successful run as WWE champion moving forward, especially now that we're going to be getting back to live audiences in a few weeks. So um, I, I, I'm, I'm going with Bobby Lashley here. I think this could be a breakout performance for him inside Hell in the Cell. And, you know, I think Drew... Um, you know who's been holding it down during the pandemic uh, will have a, a a really good showing and will help make Bobby that bigger of a champion. So um, on the other side, Roman Reigns, you know he's been on fire since he returned last year. This tribal chief character and Rey Mysterio, I think, is another perfect sacrificial lamb to really establish Roman Reigns as the guy, as the man. So I, I'm going with Roman here, and I think Roman's just going to totally obliterate Rey. Uh, to the point where, you know, maybe we'll see Dominic get involved. Maybe he'll do the same thing to Dominic. I don't know what the factor is with the Usos. Maybe they'll be involved somehow. Maybe they won't. But um, this is a tool to really just help continue the build f with Roman. Because like I've said before, eventually I think they see, I, I think they, they see him in the rock at a WrestleMania. Whether that's in Dallas next year or whether that's in Hollywood in a couple of years. They're, they want to build Roman and make him an equal to the rock going into it. And... You know, they've been doing a tremendous job with his character progression, the best work that he has ever done in his career. So Rey Mysterio, who is a, a lovable underdog, I think will be a perfect tool to help elevate Roman up the ranks as the top guy on SmackDown. So those are my predictions for the two Hell in a Cell matches. And hopefully those matches can kind of live up to the standards of what Hell in a Cells were of the past before the Hell in a Cell pay-per-view era. Um, you know, but within a modern WWE sense when it comes to the violence factor. So uh, we'll see how that turns out. But um, I'd like to thank you all very much for tuning in. Um, 
as I blabbed on about what I liked and what I disliked about the Hell in the Cell concept. Hope you all enjoyed it. Um, next week is a very special show. It's very personal for me. Um, we're going to talk about my my roots as a, as a wrestling fan for 35 years and how that involves um, time spent with my grandparents, my, my, my grandfather and my nana. And uh, I'm going to just kind of tell some stories and uh, talk about, you know, things that um, – you know, were wrestling related that involved them and revolved around my time spent with them and, you know, the memories that I share and, and things like that. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, I, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I don't really have much of a format other than I'm just going to just tell stories and talk about um, how much my grandparents meant to me and what um, their involvement was in helping further um, um helping further my passion for pro wrestling. So, um, that's, that, that's, and I, and I apologize ahead of time if, you know, I get emotional, uh, but, uh, you know, they mean a lot to me and I wanted, I want to be able to share that with all of you. So hopefully, you know, you guys, uh, um, come along for the ride for that. Um, and then hopefully in two weeks, uh, Dennis and I will be back together and we will be watching the King of the Ring 1995 uh, pay-per-view. Dennis uh, has said on numerous occasions this is one of the worst shows he's ever watched. So we're going to sit down and we're going to watch that together. It was originally supposed to be next week, but um, some scheduling issues, real life stuff got involved. And so I needed to make some adjustments and some changes, uh, hence being the, uh, the the format change for next week. So. Um, with that being said, I think it's officially about this time we put this Make Hell in a Cell Great Again episode down for the three count. And we'll see you all next week. <laughs>